basically seeing it from the outside, but coming from a personal touch um, got me to feel like music was the way to speak to people. And of course, I love being interviewed and talking to people, but there's nothing like a live performance. And there's nothing like reaching an audience and being able to touch them with music and with art. Welcome to Hyphenated, an Americanish podcast. My name is Adela Kochav, and I'm your Syrian Lebanese, Mexican Canadian, Jewish host. Growing up in the US, I always felt like I never fit into one category. And then I realized that in this melding pot of a country, no one really does. So on this show, I'm really excited to be joined by guests from hyphenated backgrounds to talk about their cultures, family histories, and what it really means to be a little bit Americanish. So welcome to Hyphenated. Welcome back to Hyphenated, an Americanish podcast. I am your Syrian Lebanese Mexican Jewish host, Adela Kochav. And today we are joined by a Moroccan Romanian Jewish Israeli Canadian multilingual music artist, Nicole Raviv. Nicole, welcome to the show. Wow, that's a handful. It's a handful. <laughs> and that's actually where I'd like to start because usually when people ask me where I'm from, I say, how much time do you have? Because it's usually a very long answer. Everyone is a little bit of something and a little bit of other things. So I'm going to ask you the dreaded question. Nicole, where are you really from? So my story starts in Montreal, Canada. I was the only one in my family born in Canada. My father's born in Morocco. My mother's born in Romania. But before Canada, they lived in Israel. My sisters were born in Israel. My brother was born in Italy. <laughs> How crazy. <laughs> so where am I from? Planet Earth. <laughs> I can imagine what it's like to travel with your family. You probably show up with like a rainbow and you're like, here, choose. Oh, there are multiple questions at the border. <laughs> it's funny because um, you're the only person born in Canada in your family. And so is my mom. So little known fact. And if you followed Americanish before hyphenated started, you know that I am also a little bit Canadian. Um, yeah, yeah. I've been Canadian for about seven, eight years now um, because my mom was born in Montreal. My family, um, when my mom's family, when they were in Lebanon, they left Lebanon. My grandma was pregnant and my they show up to Montreal. My mom was born and then they moved to Mexico. So everyone older than my mom, born in Lebanon, everyone younger than my mom, born in Mexico. My mom's the only Canadian. She's also, weirdly enough, the only blonde hair and blue eyed of her siblings. And we all just say it's because she was born in Canada. It's like the fun fact. Um, but yeah, I've been Canadian for a while now. And as an honorary Canadian, not even honorary, as an on-paper Canadian, I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to be here. And, and one of the reasons why I'm excited is because I know a little bit about the Montreal community, especially the Moroccan community of Montreal. So tell me a little bit about that. What was it like growing up? So the Moroccan Jewish community of Montreal is big. Like we're a small community. We all kind of know each other. And there are basically only a handful of schools that the Jewish people go to. Um, so when I grew up, I actually went to a Ashkenazi elementary school, Salman Schechter, if you've heard of it. And um, so it wasn't really my father's traditional like Min Hagim customs. Yeah. Um, but as someone growing up in North America, it made more sense. It was more Anglo. And then once I reached high school, I went to a school called Herzliya High School. And that was so mixed. And it was primarily French-based. So you'll have a lot of Moroccans, Russians, Ethiopians, Mizrahim, basically people from all over the world that are Jewish and are learning in French because when you're in Quebec, um, Montreal's in Quebec City, they have to learn in French. They have to practice their work in French. Mm -hmm. um, so bilingual is like something you're born with and something you need to do to work, to you know get a job, to pass an exam. You have to do it in both languages. The street signs are in French, English. Um, 
It's funny, my husband, he's American, and when he comes to visit Montreal, the stop signs say arrête and not stop. And so he'll sit there and be like, arrête. <laughs> I love it. And one of the things I love about Montreal and Quebec in general is how pretentious it is when it comes to French. Because it's not even French, it's Quebecois. Like, can we be honest? Like, yeah. Is Quebecois actually French? Who knows? It's, uh, it's a little bit of but a But people slang. will speak English, and you'll go up to them and ask them for directions, and they'll just look at you and, like, Unless you speak in French, they're not going to answer. Yeah. And it's, it, it's funny. I have an aunt um, who you actually might know because you know my cousins in Montreal. But I have a great aunt named Andrea who for some reason thinks that I specifically speak French. Like, I don't speak French. I speak a lot of languages. Spanish, English, Hebrew, Portuguese, Arabic, sure. I don't speak French. And whenever we show up to a family gathering, she'll like be telling a story to everyone in English. And then she'll turn to me specifically. She'll say something in French, laugh, and then turn back to the group. And I'm just sitting there like, I, I tell her all the time, I don't speak French. She goes, que bon amour, ha ha ha. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're saying. And I told my mom five times, like, tell Andre I don't speak French. And every time my mom tells her, she laughs it off. She even comments in French on all my Facebook and Instagram posts. And I'm like, this... Makes no sense. But that's the Quebecois in her, you know? <laughs> I have to speak a little bit of French in there. Um, yeah, they're big on preserving their culture. Yeah, big on that. Um, and I love that you went to a diverse Jewish school because the school I went to was almost entirely Syrian Jewish. We had a couple of Ashkenazim here and there, a couple of Moroccans, zero Persians, funny enough. But um, I really just knew one kind of Jew growing up, and it seems like you had a lot of exposure early on. Yeah, um, I feel like I've been exposed to multiple types of Jewish people and telling people, oh yeah, I'm a half North African Jew, half Eastern European Jew. They're like, what? They don't believe me. <laughs> yeah. You you don't look Jewish is the common uh, <laughs> phrase. But I would say speaking about the Moroccan Jewish community, a lot of it was based in synagogue. A lot of, was it like Jewish prayers, like Moroccan tunes. My father's a chazan. So he is a Jewish, well, for anybody who doesn't know what a chazan is, it's a Jewish cantor. So Jewish prayer, someone who leads services in shul synagogue. Um, in French, we say sina, <laughs> the slang for synagogue. Um, and that was kind of my community. I would hang around going with him on Saturdays. Uh, my family would go with him and get to listen to him and also be a part of the Shabbat experience. So I feel like that was where my community of Moroccan Jewry was developed and where I really liked it. I was, I remember as a little girl going to synagogue and like fighting over candies on like Simchat Torah and like being all like in the know of like, oh yeah, like the events that are happening. And it was really fun. And Israeliness was also part of my home. Like my parents lived in Israel before they went to Montreal. So we were celebrating Israeli holidays, Jewish holidays, mm -hmm. um, Canada Day. My mom's like, what is that? Like, <laughs> what do we do on Canada Day? Do we a barbecue? Like, do we go out with our Canadian flags, like to a parade? It was it was just like all a fresh start for my my family. They were immigrants. Um, and I was kind of the one to lead the way with that. And later on became a national anthem singer singing Canadian yes. anthems and American anthems. Which is what we're going to get to. So um, you got your start in music really from the influence of your father, who was a chazan. And then you really like ballooned into a national anthem singer here in the United States of all places. So we wanted to add another place to the list. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your musical journey. Where'd you begin? So as a child, I would hear my father sing, and I was told that my grandmother, actually I'm named after her, mm -hmm. um, my Hebrew name is Yaffa, based on her name Jamila. And she, by the way, 
I'm going to stop you right there. For everyone listening, that's a beautiful Americanish moment because <laughs> Yaffa means beautiful in Hebrew. Jamila means beautiful in Arabic. Right. So um, That's what I'm wearing, actually. Really? Yeah, it says Jamila. And you clearly embody it, so. Thank you. <laughs> so let's continue. <laughs> so I was told that she had a beautiful voice and she was a singer, but it was less traditional for women to use their voices back then. And my father grew up in a home where his his father was very involved in Judaism and religion and in teaching Torah to their family. And he kind of took that on to himself and was actually met my mom on stage later in Israel. They they met in an, in an acting group in Yafo in Israel. So being a musician and being in the arts was part of my family naturally. And as a child, I was exposed to it. I was always listening to it. And then growing up in Canada, I was listening to, you know, modern music and things that are more common and things that aren't so traditional. Um, so I'm kind of in the area now where I'm trying to blend both. But as an 18-year-old who finished high school, I was dreaming of New York City. I was like, I, you know, I want to go study there. And I loved music. I loved theater. I started in theater in Montreal. I was in the community theater and actually was doing Yiddish theater. So add another <laughs> language to that. <laughs> and I decided to take it full on and to audition and to do this professionally. And it started in New York. So I got to New York, I went to the American Musical Dramatic Academy, and then the New School, and these are schools that I've gotten most of my training from um, classically and learning to act and to dance and to sing from all all ranges of shows and, and really being like diverse and um, multifaceted. You have to be a triple threat. <laughs> they talk about that a lot. Um, so yeah, I think that this whole like basically seeing it from the outside, but coming from a personal touch um, got me to feel like music was the way to speak to people. Mm -hmm. And of course, I love being interviewed and talking to people, but there's nothing like a live performance. And there's nothing like reaching an audience and being able to touch them with music and with art, who was going to sing in the stadiums at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island and Barclay Center in Brooklyn at the time. And this wasn't even that long ago. <laughs> At the time. At the like time. A year and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I submitted and we had to sing the American and the Canadian anthem for the audition. And for me, that was something that was so natural. Like coming as a Canadian, I knew the Canadian anthem in French and in English, a bilingual anthem. So I went, I did my thing and they were like, whoa, what is this? Who is this girl? I've got a French speaker here. <laughs> and I advanced in the audition process and I met them. And because the NHL hosts lots of Canadian teams, it was a fait accompli. It was a, it, <laughs> it was just meant to be. And I got the job and I was their home singer for two seasons and slowly, slowly gained this worldwide presence of standing up for countries and being this ambassador in very official ceremonies, standing with flags and being like, wow, music is taking me to a place where I'm not only singing in front of cameras and thousands and thousands of people, I'm doing something on a very national and international level. Mm -hmm. And it takes on a whole other responsibility. And I mean, you, you did sing for the Islanders, but you also got to sing for the Jets. You got to sing for the Mets. Um, you know, you were you were making your rounds there when it comes to sports teams and different sports worlds. Yeah, being in the sports world is like once you get to one team, another team hears about you, and another hear another team hears about you, and you just become this like team player. They like follow you around. <laughs> yeah, they're like know. pass the ball. <laughs> Let's get the singer here. And 
honestly, I loved every second of it. I'm still doing it whenever someone calls me to do an appearance at a sports game. It's one of the most thrilling experiencing experiences to sing in a stadium. And it's the best. I, th I think it's one of the best like avenues for a singer to get some exposure and also be able to have your voice listened to. And it's like, it's a national anthem, right? So everyone knows the song. That's also a big everyone part of it. Words. Everyone knows the words, everyone knows the song. And a big part of what I did um, with the viral moment that went crazy, I had Which a national we anthem. We want to talk yeah, about it. So there's a viral moment. Um, so Nicole was doing her thing, singing for the Islanders. And then you had this crazy moment and it was during COVID, right? It was actually right after fans were allowed back in the stadium. So... COVID, you know, no no fans, everything was just watching on TV, a lot of viral like renditions of national anthems, but this was something that was special because fans were allowed back in the stadium and no masks and you can have food in your seats. You're like, what is this human connection again? Like what's going on? I can eat a hot dog in public. What? <laughs> exactly. And yeah, it was a moment where I had the opportunity to involve the crowd. And of course, the fact that my microphone wasn't working was a big part of it. And it was an embarrassing moment that was a blessing in disguise mm. because the entire stadium was singing with me. And it was a moment where we left politics aside. It didn't matter if you, you know, which side you were with. And it didn't really matter about any controversies. It was just a moment where people were singing together mm -hmm. before a big game, before a big moment. And... It, it was everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. It was it was a light. It was a light of hope. It was in the Stanley Cup semis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And for everyone listening who doesn't know, the Stanley Cup is the Super Bowl of hockey world. So <laughs> I, I didn't know for a while, but um, I have some hockey friends. I, I dabble. Um, so yeah, during during the Stanley Cup semifinal, your microphone goes out, you involve the crowd, and then that snowballs and balloons into this viral moment that's being shared everywhere. But there was something else going on at the time. At the time, it was May 2021, right? So Israel was in the middle of um, of chaos. There were rockets being thrown into Israel. Almost every day we were hearing of different attacks. So so what ended up happening? While, while all this is happening at the same time, you made a very big life-changing decision. So at the moment um, where the season was getting to the climax and I was performing on national television, I was told, you know, maybe keep your Judaism a little low key. Mm -hmm. Like don't be wearing these necklaces. Don't kind of like outwardly pose your Judaism and your pro-Israel uh, opinions. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm a person who as an actor, as a singer, I am I'm here to serve. So I'm not going to bring anything political into it, but I am going to stand with who I am. And as an authentic Jewish woman, proud Israeli daughter, um, I'm not going to hide who I am. And at the same time, when things were going on in Israel, I did want to stand with my family who was experiencing um, terror at the same time. And I did it in my own way. And I got lots of messages from people seeing me on TV wearing um, my heritage on my chest while I sing. They were very touched and they said, thank you for representing mm -hmm. who you are. And thank you for being somebody that we can look up to and that we have representation. And there's a big New York Jewish community. So it wasn't something that I was you know, afraid of. And I think that we should show the, the beautiful sides of who we are and we should be able to 
appreciate it and and be inclusive of it and be tolerant of it. And I want to learn about, you know, Muslim culture. I want to learn about Christian culture. I want to learn about all of it. I want all of us to talk and, and to be, you know, advocates for each other. And so this is my way of being who I am. And people really, really appreciate it. And I said, you know what, this is a transition for me as I dream of moving to the Holy Land. And I was in the process of actually going and moving to Tel Aviv. And once the season was over, my husband and I picked up and we moved to to Tel Aviv. Um, (laughs) It's funny, I tell people now because I'm traveling all over doing singing and and performing. And people tell me like, so do you still live there? Like you moved, but do you still live there? I'm like, well, my mail goes there. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. We, we, We live a very international life, but we love the fact that we did this transition to Israel because it opened up this whole different aspect of now I'm in the Middle East, I'm in a different region, I have to understand what's going on here and kind of showcase to the rest of the world what's going on, What what's what's this little country in the Middle East and what's going on there? Like, tell me more. <laughs> so I love that. And, and first off, I just want to highlight that when everything was going on in Israel in May 2021, we were getting the trickle effect here in New York, exactly like you said. Jews were being attacked in the street. Jews were being attacked at restaurants in New York and L.A. Um, people were being asked on the street, are you Jewish? And if they answered affirmatively, uh, affirmatively, they'd be, you know, harassed or attacked or accosted. And um, it was a moment I remember specifically where, especially when it came to being visibly Jewish, and for me who doesn't dress modestly, everyone would just say, well, take off the necklace. You know, yeah. it's that easy. And um, the best way to fight anti-Semitism is through visibility and Jewish pride. Because if your solution for anti-Semitism is to hide your Judaism, then you're letting anti-Semitism win, right? Like, have you tried being less Jewish should never be the response to, hey, I'm afraid about anti-Semitism. So what you did there, that visibility, especially on national TV, that is Jewish ambassadorship. That's Jewish activism. And I commend you. And I know that, you know, everyone listening commends you because that is that is the first step. If people who are visible show that they're not afraid, then everyone else becomes unafraid. It shouldn't be concerning or alarming or or even an event to see someone who's visibly Jewish on the street. This is New York, you know. So so first off, I want to commend you. Second, making the decision to move to Israel. That's huge. Um, becoming an international sensation. That's huge. And sharing what Israel is with the rest of the Middle East is even bigger. So I want to get to what you're working on right now because you have a project that I've never seen anything like it. I've posted about it on my story. We'll keep posting it again. If you're listening to this episode, check it out on our links and on our link tree. But you're working on something called uh, the Narrow Bridge Project. Yes. First of all, thank you, Adela. Of course. <laughs> Women supporting women. I love it. (laughs) And yeah, segue into the Narrow Bridge Project. So obviously, if you know about the song Narrow Bridge, it's something that is an old Jewish Hebrew song, very big staple in Israeli culture. And the lyrics are, Kol haolam kulo gesher tzarmod. The whole entire world is a very narrow bridge. And through this narrow bridge, we are basically trying to bridge communities together, countries together, and people. It's a people-to-people connection. And... The song itself has been, you know, sung around the world in different places, whether it's, you know, on camp trips or in Israel. And it's such an old, uh, it's just an old embodiment of who we are, Jewish values. And I took the song and I was like, I'm going to reinvent it. I'm going to make it modern. I'm going to make it fresh. I'm going to make it sexy. I'm going to make Jewish sexy. Yes. And we're going to add English in it and Arabic in it and have the original Hebrew words to it and make it this trilingual version of this song, which actually represents the three languages in Israel. So if you don't know, in in Israel, 
You have English, Arabic, and Hebrew. The road signs are in all three languages. And I decided that this is the way to celebrate the mosaic of Israel. And Israel was nearing its 75th birthday. And I was very much involved in projects around Israel's 75th. And for me, my music is something that I'm using as an expression and as a way of bringing people together and bridging peace. And I took the languages that I already speak. Um, I started diving into Arabic music and really, like, really admiring all that there is to the culture, to the literature, to the poetry. It's so deep. And bringing it with the whole Middle Eastern flair and also, like, you have this, like, New York pop, like, R&B yeah. vibe to it. And it's like, where do those two connect? And with this song, I was able to express that. And now um, we opened it up for submission. So people around the world are actually entering their own version of the song in their own language. That's amazing. And we're getting submissions of the Narrow Bridge song from Nigeria, from Indonesia, from Italy, um, from Ukraine. It's like we're doing our own Eurovision at this yeah, point. I love that. <laughs> and it's something amazing. When I launched the project, I wanted it to be worldly but you know you get scared you're like is someone going to submit like will this reach people is it just going to reach the people who it's already being exposed to and to my surprise and to my like dearest appreci appreciation people around the world are being affected by it and I'm seeing the effect that it has and I just can't wait to keep keep doing this and I was just in Canada performing the song. The song has been transformed already to so many versions and live versions and instruments. And then we added a French verse when we were in Canada. Um, I was on tour with an artist who has like a passerby project, which means he's passing passing by the world. And just it's a it's it's a really beautiful way this project to uh, to really bridge people together. And that's that's why it's called Narrow Bridge. And and. I'm excited to see where else it's heading. I'm excited to see it grow. And I, I know that you were just in Morocco with the Narrow Bridge Project too. So what was that experience like, especially as a Moroccan Jew coming back to Morocco? Yeah, so in Morocco, I was actually with my family and we went back to our roots. And my father's from Meknes. And we decided to go back and literally search for his home. Wow. And it was a really, really deep experience of 22 of us. Okay, you have like a baby who's like not even three months old <laughs> and you've got my father who just had his 70th birthday congratulations and uh we're all together a, a tribe really like going back to our roots and moroccan jewelry is like slowly slowly diminishing there are really not many moroccan jews left in morocco and when i was there i realized how the muslim jewish relations were so like at their peak before they left. And people were talking about how when the Jews left Morocco, it really left a hole in their country. Like the king loved the Jews. The yeah. Jews brought a lot of culture, education, a lot of, you know, a lot of good to the country. And we see this beautiful example of two religions living side by side and being able to benefit from that business, economy-wise, like culturally. And I just felt like this this gap and I was like, how how can I like reach back in there and how can I connect back to that? So it's also a big part of my mission to do that. And then the Narrow Bridge Project brought me to the UAE mm. and in the United Arab Emirates, um, there was the first Israeli Independence Day was celebrated in Abu Dhabi, which is huge. A few years ago, before the Abraham Accords, you would have never seen an Israel Independence Day being celebrated in Abu Dhabi. Never heard of. And... Through this Abraham Accords celebration of a family reunion, it really does feel like that. It's like cousins who are like, I don't know who you are, mm. 
but I know we're connected. Yeah. Yeah. Children of Abraham coming together. I love it. And especially like when it comes to like uncles getting into feuds and the kids are like, all right, like, I don't know what. Yeah. It's like, let's put the, the family is. drama behind yeah. us. Like I, we're all inhabiting the same exact, the same region and, and the Middle East really isn't that big. So, um, you know, having, having allies is, is a huge deal. I'm actually going to Dubai and Abu Dhabi in a couple of weeks. So I'm really excited for that. Um, how was the narrow bridge project received in the Middle East? Like what, what did you feel that the takeaway was there? So I actually was able to collaborate with an Emirati singer there and he mm -hmm. jumped on the song with me. So he sang the Arabic verse and he learned it within a few minutes, a song that he's never heard. Um, he was able to give his own flair to it and the crowd really loved it. They felt it. They were like these, these two, through these two artists, we see a connection that we didn't even know was possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's something that is so simple and the words themselves keep repeating themselves in different languages, which I also think is a unique way to do it because it's really not something that you need to go so complicated with in a long story. It's one sentence that resonates in every language. And to me, language, speaking another language or going to another place in the world literally gives you another lens, gives you another perspective and makes you closer to the person who's actually indigenous to that place. So for me, it was important to include Arabic and it was important to actually sing it with a person from there. Yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah, I have no more words. <laughs> and I know that this isn't your first experience with uh, interfaith community building through music. So you're part of an orchestra in Israel that is interfaith. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So interfaith music is something that I've been a part of um, for about the past two years. And I have people in the orchestras that I play with that live in Israel and are not necessarily Jewish. They're a beautiful mosaic. Um, we've got people who are Christian, Muslim, Japanese, like people who are coming together through the power of music. And even, even the use of the instruments are more traditional and authentic. So you'll see like a Persian neh, which is like a beautiful flute sounding, like old version of, of, of music that you're like, oh, just listening to that opens up this like gate in your heart mm -hmm. that you're like, wow, where's where's that taking me? Um, or we'll have an Arabic oud, which is a very um, popular Arabic instrument in mo most Middle Eastern songs. Um, or you'll have like a clarinet or you'll have like a saz, which is a Ottoman Turkish mm -hmm. instrument. So just the combination of these instruments together, um, even leaving faith like depending on how religious you are, it doesn't even doesn't even matter. Once you get to the part where you're playing music together, if you can have a bassist from you know Israel and me from New York and um, the clarinet player from Georgia and the flute player from Jap Japan, and we're all playing together. And that for me is like where I want to be. I love that. I love that. And that actually um, takes us to our final segment um, because throughout the throughout this episode, we've been talking about all this community building and all these different faiths coming together, all these different traditions and cultures coming together through music. And I want to talk about tradition and culture of coming together. So we are going to move to Spill the Tea. And um, the first thing I want to talk about here is your favorite tradition. I want to talk about a tradition that I love that I definitely want to know more about, which is the Moroccan wedding celebration. <laughs> My brother just got married in Mexico and Mexican weddings are their whole 
own animal, right? They start, it's pretty late. They start around like 9 p.m. You do the chuppah. Chuppah ends at like 11.30. Then everyone goes to like the wedding reception. You don't get served dinner until like midnight. And then um, you dance until 8 in the morning. You get served breakfast. It's a lot of fun. My feet are still recovering. <laughs> um, but that's Mexican weddings. And uh, Moroccan weddings, I think, are the second most fun I've been to. There's Mexican and then there's Moroccan. Because there's a lot of things going on. So walk us through a Moroccan wedding. Wow. So first of all, you would start with a Moroccan henna, which is the party you do prior to the wedding. Mm -hmm. Some people take the henna and they join it with the wedding night. I was like, no, no, we're having two separate evenings. (laughs) (laughs) And the Moroccan party was seriously one of my favorite parties. Um, My grandmother, unfortunately, is no longer with us. She would be the one leading the whole ceremonial part of it. But my aunt, who is from Lod um, or Lud, depends how you say it. It's a community in Israel, mixed Arab Arab and Jewish city. And she led the whole thing. And of course, I'm not going to do it now, but you know the sounds that come from a Moroccan woman. I can can do it now if you want. (laughs) Go for it. Sorry about the microphone. (laughs) Yes. We're going to have to lower that later in audio. Exactly. That's called allelating, from what I understand. Shakira did it once during the Super Bowl, you know. Oh, well, maybe I'll include that in my next song. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of that going around. Um, there's actually a funny story where my parents, uh, my mom is Romanian, so super Ashkenaz family, um, you know, daughter of Holocaust survivors, definitely a different culture than like my Moroccan, mm-hmm. Jewish, North African side. And they, when they got married, my mother said that her mother, my grandmother on my Romanian side, told her, what is all this noise? Like, can you keep it down? Like, tell the other side to stop. <laughs> and now we're just like so in it and we're so prideful of these Love noises that. because they're celebrations. They're like crazy expressions of happiness. And so, of course, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of music. And there's the henna part, which is the part where henna is supposed to give you good luck. And so you have like this tub of like brown stuff. Okay. It does not sound attractive. And like the people coming to my henna thought it would be like this beautiful henna tattoo where they'll have like designs. And I was like, no, that's Indian. Like a Moroccan henna is literally just like a glob mm-hmm. on your they hand. Just glob it on. And they put like a cotton pad and they'll wrap it with like either like a pearl bracelet or they'll do something to keep it together. And the, the longer you have it on, the more orange it gets and the more stain it is on your hand. And there's all these traditions of like, the longer you keep it, the more luck you'll have. Um, but you do it before the wedding to obviously bring you luck to the marriage and to the union of the bride and the groom. And I remember we had um, at my wedding, I, I'm married to an American Ashkenazi um, from Polish, like Lithuanian yeah. descent. And I had him in this like full Aladdin suit. And <laughs> we were wearing like the traditional Moroccan garb. And I was loving it. I'm like, give me my crown, give me my dress, my kaftan. And we're, we were brought in in this like carriage, mm-hmm. like olden times. And I'm like, this is, if this isn't a movie, like what is? <laughs> and we had the best time. And I remember my, my in-laws were like, what is going on? But they were here for it. Who doesn't love like a themed party, right? Yeah. And, um, the music was great. The food is great. Um, we're big on like the Moroccan sweets, which are just way too sweet in my opinion. I love Moroccan candy. No, it's delicious. And um, and then the wedding part happens, which actually like in my wedding, we incorporated his traditions and my traditions. And of course, like in Judaism, the traditions come from the father and the halachic, which means like the rules of being Jewish, comes from your mother. So basically like you're Jewish if your mother's Jewish, 
by law, but the traditions are coming from your father's mm -hmm. side. So that's why like my mom was taught very early on how to cook Moroccan food. And so I didn't grow up with so much Romanian food in my house because my father was like, well, you know, where's the couscous? Yeah, the tradition comes from the father's <laughs> where's side. Where's the fish? Like, <laughs> oh no, my, my home, when I get, do get married, I don't know to who yet. And I don't know from what tradition yet, but whoever it is, they're going to have to understand like Syrian Lebanese is going to trump all here. Yeah. Um, but I actually, I love, um, again, the, the Moroccan henna with the goop. So we actually do um, something similar with henna, not really similar, but when we do a mikveh, the, the tevila ceremony. So um, the mikveh is a ritual bath that a woman goes to uh, before her wedding. And in Mexico, it's a whole party. And then there's an all women's brunch. Like we're talking, it's like a 150 person event. It's like a big deal. But um, before the woman goes into the mikveh, we mix um, henna with sugar and warm water and we pour it over the bride's feet and everyone takes turns pouring it over. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which which I, like I I had never seen before. My my sister in laws half Turkish and half Ashkenaz, and they were just doing it naturally. But my my aunts that are Syrian Lebanese like me, they're like, oh yeah, like we do this sometimes. So I'm not really sure where that tradition comes from, but um, it was nice to partake in it. So it's funny how henna is attached to so many different wedding rituals, and it's done in so many different ways. Um, so yeah, I, I I love the whole idea of henna, but. Other than weddings, one of my favorite things about cultures is superstitions because it shows you what the, the culture is thinking about. And I know that you're Israeli and you're Canadian and you're Moroccan and you're Romanian and you're all these things. So can you share one superstition or tradition that you have from any of your cultures? I think the biggest one that's coming to mind now is an Israeli tradition. Mm -hmm. Something that my parents always told me, like before I walk into a room, like always walk with your right foot forward. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like, in Hebrew, we would say, so with your right foot forward, meaning like, let's, you know, give it like the best foot forward, like the best luck. So I guess it's all about luck also. And in Judaism, the right side, like you always say, like my right hand towards Jerusalem, like it's, it's kind of like, I guess your more dominant side. Um, and it's just a superstition where it's like, you know, put your best foot forward. When we were talking about this before, you're like, yeah, and you do it when you walk into a plane, when you walk into a job interview, you just always start with your right foot. Yeah, I've been traveling a lot these days and sometimes I forget, right? You're like so tired and you're jet lagged and you're like walking. And then I remember like the last plane I got on, I was like already looking like, where am I sitting on the plane? And I was like, oh, right foot, go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a beautiful tradition. And the last thing I want to end in is um, a word or saying that doesn't quite have an English equivalent. Ooh, so there's a lot of these. I'm going to say one in Moroccan that my father says usually before um, we'll do like the Shabbat prayers on Friday night. So before like Kiddush, he'll say like blabash, blabash miach and whoever's missing. And so blabash means like in Moroccan and Arabic, it means like so that they don't go missing in our hearts. Oh. And it means like, let's not forget the people who aren't with us right now and we'll like give them a blessing. So it's like this way of incorporating the people who matter to you the most. Mm -hmm. And like sometimes even when you're asked, like, how are you doing? You'll be like, blah, bash, like, like, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm nothing's missing. Like, so you oh. you kind of like incorporate the things that you that matter to you the most. I love that one. 
I love that lavash. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, my grandpa does something similar on Shabbat. We, we're also an international family. We're all over the place. So there's always someone missing. And when my grandpa does um, the hamotzi on Shabbat, uh, he does kohanim over it because he's a kohen. And he puts a piece of bread for every one of the grandchildren who aren't at the table. So, um, you know, when we FaceTime or anything like that, he'll say, oh, and we have your bread here. So it's it's also a, a way to kind of keep them in. But I'm going to blabash a whole bunch. It's also a fun <laughs> word to say. So. It is fun. <laughs> so, Nicole, thank you so much for being on the show. We are super excited to have you here. And to everyone listening, keep listening to Hyphenated, and we'll see you next episode.